The presenting sponsor this season is Subaru. As a group of adventurers, you've probably heard of Subaru, but let me tell you about one of their cars that's a fan favorite, the 2020 Subaru Forester. Here are a couple reasons to love the Forester. Let's start with something we all care about, safety. The 2020 Forester has driver-focused distraction mitigation system, which helps guards against distracted driving. Have more than one person driving in the car? You can set it up so it recognizes up to five drivers. Technology's amazing. Next on the list is that Subaru is built to last. According to Experian Automotive, 97% of Forester vehicles sold in the last 10 years are still on the road today. It's hard to say goodbye to your Subaru. And last but not least is the fact that the 2020 Forester is the only non-luxury SUV that includes standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, which means better handling and a quicker response to road conditions. What's not to love about the 2020 Forester? You can learn more about everything the car has to offer at Subaru.com. You can find details and a disclaimer about the driver-focused technology in our show notes. So last night I watched a video of you hanging Christmas lights. <laughs> Talk to me about this activity because one, I didn't realize how lucrative it could be. And two, like I always wondered how people get their Christmas lights up so high. Oh yeah. I had no idea about professional Christmas lighting until I, I was climbing up in, um, in Canmore, Alberta. And a friend of mine who was like a really close climbing partner, he, he was climbing all the time. And I was just like, how do you do it, man? And he, uh, he started a Christmas lights business and he kind of told me what he was charging. And I was like, man, that seems amazing. Like I, I want that lifestyle. How does Christmas light hanging prepare you for climbing? Oh God. Um, we used to say that Christmas lights isn't training for alpine climbing. <laughs> alpine climbing is training for Christmas lights <laughs> because you know, you're like on these ridges that are like snowy on one side and you'd have to, a lot of times you'd have to wear a rope and you would like have the counterbalance weight of your partner that was like hanging lights on the other side. And so you'd just be precariously over like, you know, a 30 foot drop over concrete and you're just like clipping these Christmas lights in. And, you know, you'd put these wreaths under these roofs that were like really inset. And so it'd be like overhanging and you'd have to like really reach under there. And it was hard work. And, you know, it, I wouldn't say that it made you a better climber, but it made you pretty tough. <laughs> When you look up Jesse Huey on Google, there's an epic climbing video by one of his sponsors, Arcteryx, that shows Jesse and his best friend and climbing partner, Hayden Kennedy, approaching hanging Christmas lights like it's their next big climb. It's a goofy and clever video and it's hilarious, just like the two guys. Not only was Christmas light hanging great training for alpine climbing, but for many seasons, it allowed Jesse and Hayden to fund many of their climbing expeditions and their lifestyle. Back in January of 2020, I met up with Jesse at the Outdoor Retailer Show, and we talked about his love of climbing. I also talked to him about his friend Hayden and how losing him inspired Jesse to finish a climb in the Wyoming wilderness in Hayden's honor. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Before we dive into the show, I wanted to let you know in this episode, we talk about suicide and survivor's guilt. I know this is a tough and triggering topic, so please take care of yourself when listening. And if you or someone you know is struggling, know that there's always someone there to listen. 
The number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. So enough about Christmas lighting. You're a legit climber. Like I was watching videos of you and you climb ice, you climb rocks, you climb mountains, you do Christmas light hanging. How did you get into climbing? And I'm not a climber, Mm -hmm. so maybe you can describe what sort of climbing you do. Yeah. I, well, I grew up in the Northwest. So Seattle, that whole zone has like a real deep mountaineering culture, which, you know, living in Boulder, Colorado now, it's, I'd say it's very rock climbing oriented. And so growing up in the mountains, you know, there's skiing, there's, there's big mountains that are fun to hike up, there's glaciers. And that was my original draw to it was just kind of being up in the Alpine. And that kind of was refined down to more like technical climbing. Um, so my dad, he was a land surveyor. And so he would always take me out on these like forestry surveys and we'd be walking through like these crazy logging surveys, um, way up in the North Cascades. So I grew up in the mountains and oftentimes we'd be like in pretty steep places. And it just always was super interesting to me to be up there. You climbed in college, right? I did. I, I actually, was introduced, you know, I, I had this like genuine interest in, in climbing and mountaineering pre-college for sure, but I was a rower in college. So I, I was in the University of Washington. and nice. That's a good um, D1 school. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, we were, I, I don't know how much you know about collegiate rowing, but University of Washington's certainly, you know, one of the top three. So that whole University of Washington rowing thing, it, it it was, it was interesting because we had this like unbelievable amount of fitness. Rowers are tough. Yeah. I, I mean, we do practices three times a day and, and they taught us how to win, like, like in a way that I've never, and will never see. And, you know, it, it's like a really innate thing that's kind of in you now. And I feel like you, you, you have this skill that relates in life. Very, how do you put it? it, it it's not. It's not really relatable until like you're in the mountains or like you're doing something where you just can't find that in everyday life, you know, like where you're like, oh yeah, no, it's, this is time where you dig deep and you're either a winner or a loser. You rode all four years of college? Yeah. But you also competed in climbing college. I didn't compete. No, you did. I, I okay. was introduced to climbing from a guy, not introduced. I mean, I'd been around it, but the University of Washington has the first outdoor climbing wall in the country. So it's, it's, and it's really well set. It's all natural rocks in concrete and it sits right on the cut. So we'd row by it every day. The cut is the Montlake cut, which is like this famous like waterway between two lakes in, in Seattle. But that climbing wall is really kind of like the first and and it's a special, special place. It's there's guidebooks for it. Like, um, all these like really renowned climbers have spent a lot of time there. And, and so that's where I started climbing. So you rode in college, but climbing became a really big part of your life. Well, yeah. I mean, when, when you're done with collegiate rowing at that level, it's really hard to know where to file like life, honestly, because you were just part of something that was so intense, so regimented three times a day, so practiced. And it's a hard segue into, into just normal life, honestly. And I think you see that with rowers. Uh, I don't know about other sports, but it was a really natural segue because I had all this routine and regimen in my life and I didn't know where to file it. So rock climbing, it's just, you know, it's a practice. And so 
all that fitness and all that time just got put into becoming a better climber. Did you ever compete in climbing then? I have been asked to compete uh, at times. I'm not like a gifted rock climber compared to like the truly gifted rock climbers. I mean, every, everything that I can do has been really hard earned. It's not like natural talent, you know? And, and so in ice climbing, I've, I've been asked to compete quite a bit. Um, I've done it a few times. So wait, let's back up. Ice climbing is really when you climb up like waterfalls or. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots, there's, paint there's a picture. There's a, cu- a couple different versions of it. Ice climbing can be up the face of a mountain that's like permanent alpine ice. So like Mount Baker, Mount Rainier, you know, you can, you can climb like 60 degree ice. That'd be ice climbing. And you're wearing like spikes on your shoes. And Full spikes. Taking Spike like, country. What, what do you, what do you, what are, what is the thing called? I'm ice sorry. Axe. They call ice that axes. an ice axe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like banging with my fist right now. I'm really inept guys. Sorry. I don't ice climb. I grew up completely on the beach. I would love Dangerous. to though. That's the one yeah. sport. Stay away from it. What? No, it kidding. looks so cool. It's but, so cool. So there's, there's climbing up mountains that are covered in ice and then waterfalls. Yep. Waterfalls. So how do I put this? It, it, it's this, um, it's this pretty spectacular, super ephemeral thing that's going on where like a waterfall might come off in nine places. It'll, or, you know, it'll, it'll pour over and then there'd be a pool that you could swim in in the summer and then it'll pour over and then there'd be a pool you could swim in in the summer. And it might do that nine or 10 times. And so like a really classic ice route would be one that you walk on frozen ice up to this beautiful frozen waterfall, climb it walk a hundred feet to the next frozen waterfall, climb it. And, you know, it's just tiered steps. Yeah. It's awesome. So how do you make a living as a climber? Like you've had a really long climbing yeah. career. It feels like. Yeah. I, I, I definitely don't make a living as a climber. I mean, I, I, I have a little bit of income that comes from it that I I've always said that my income through climbing basically pays for my habit. That's really cool. Actually. What I really appreciate is that it's not really cool that like you are not getting paid millions of dollars for climbing. I really like that for you. But I think I really respect that you're honest about how you make a living as an adventure. Like you've chosen to do something even though you're not getting paid to do it a lot. Oh yeah. I mean, if I didn't make a dollar doing what I'm doing, I'd still be doing it. So how do you make your money? Then? Uh, I have a land surveying business in Boulder. It's like Colorado. your dad. Yeah, totally. He taught it to me when I was like six. Can you describe just real quickly what a land surveyor is for people who don't know? Well, I, I do so many different types of surveying. Surveying is basically mapping or, you know, per- protracting of like property lines on land that people buy or own. And so when you buy a piece of property, you get a deed and it says uh, on the deed, it's called the legal description that says how to survey the land. And uh, it might mean go from this tree to that tree to that stone and then back to the origin point. Um, and then it's my job to read that and determine how to, how to draw that on the land. Climbing is challenging. It requires both physical and mental strength. It can also be pretty dangerous. As someone who's lost many friends to the sport, Jesse Huey has a unique perspective on it. So climbing is a discipline, but it's totally unlike other sports because it is massively dangerous in some ways. Sure. Yeah. Talk to me about like the, the dangers of the sport and, and sort of how you've approached that. Yeah, it's a good question. 
at first it was, uh, you know, when you get into climbing in say your twenties and when you get into climbing in general, the danger component, it's like, you're really exposed to the danger in the beginning because you just don't know what you don't know. I just plowed through books. I read so many books. Like yeah. what? You know, not books, how to build an anchor, how to, how to, how to do this, how to do that, how to ice climb, how to rock climb, how to haul a bag up a cliff because we didn't really have the access to, to, you know, videos or, or the guides or the clinics that are out there now. And, and it was really kind of a self-taught thing. And, and it was more about mentorship. And so I, I, yeah, I found some really great mentors. And so that, that's kind of the first thing I'd say. And, and, and when you're in your twenties and you start to climb, you, you don't really see accidents right away, you know, and, and you don't lose friends. And then, you know, 20 years later, you know, you, you like can remember your mentors having lots of friends pass away or, or, you know, reading stories about these epic like tales of partners dying and getting down solo or whatever. And, and then when you've done it for 20, 25 years, you know, those things are your reality. So it's, it's certainly something that you've, you kind of grow up with when you grow up with the sport, you know, and, um, it's revealed to you slowly layer by layer and it sucks. Yeah. The, the, that component of it is, is really sad. And, and, and to me, I love it so much that I'm, I've accepted that I might lose my life to it. And I think that my family gets that. It's certainly something that I don't want to have happen. You know, I mean, I, I think it'd be a total failure to die in the mountains because it's like my practice. This is like what I do, you know, and I've put, I've dedicated so much of my life to it that that would be like the ultimate fail. You know, a friend of mine says you die in the mountains, you lose. At the same time, I'm not going to stop climbing in the mountains because I might die there. I, I, you know, I might pick routes that I think are more safe. And I've certainly done that as I've gotten older with the loss that I've experienced in my community. But it's also such a tight knit community. Mm, Yeah. It, It seems I can't think of any other sport except for maybe big wave surfing. There's a little bit of loss there. Mm-hmm. Not a ton, yeah, but there is, and that community is so tight. Yeah, I think that uh, you know I've had so many people. I, I have a house in Boulder, and I've had so many people stay with me that I've never met, mm. based on you know friendships through mutual friends. And every time something bad happens in our community, you know you feel the ripple effect, and you might not be close with that person, or you maybe never met them, but you can really feel it, you know, and. And, and to answer your question, though, yeah, it is a super close community, and I think it, that's probably one of the most special things about climbing, honestly, the, the camaraderie and the partnerships. Jesse picks his climbs very carefully. He chooses routes where he knows the risk and feels that he can manage them with his skills and his knowledge. But objective hazards, like events that are out of his control... Those are just no-goes for Jesse at this point in his career. When we come back, Jesse opens up about the loss of his friend, an extraordinary climber, Hayden Kennedy. We also talk about Jesse's decision to pursue a climb that Hayden didn't get the chance to finish himself and what that was like. (laughs) 
Arc'teryx is built on the principle of obsessive precise design, which means they create versatile, long-lasting outdoor gear that stands up to the most epic of adventures. They recently released a new version of a fan favorite, their Adamelty hoodie, which has been updated with more contemporary fit, features, and style lines, making it more versatile than ever before. It's a jacket that keeps you warm and dry while being lightweight, which means it's perfect to use as a layer for whatever cold weather activity you have lined up for this winter. It's one jacket with endless possibilities. You can learn more about the Adam LT hoodie and Arcteryx by visiting arcteryx.com or shop the Adam LT hoodie at REI. In 2019, Jesse headed into the Wind River Range in Wyoming with a mission. He'd been there four years earlier with his friend Hayden Kennedy and their climbing partners, Whit Magro and Mike Pennings, when Hayden and Whit established the first half of a route called Gambling in the Winds on Mount Hooker. Two years later, Hayden took his own life. Jesse and his climbing buddies knew they had to honor Hayden by finishing what he'd started. I'll let Jesse share the rest of the story. So you have a friend, Hayden, who mm-hmm. passed away mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. Tell me just a little bit about Hayden, because he was in the video with you doing the Christmas lights. Christmas yeah, lights totally. And he seems like he was just such a character and so full of life. And I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, Hayden, um Hayden was, you know, he was one of my best friends for sure. He I met him when he was 17 years old. He hadn't even graduated high school yet. And easily the most gifted all around climber I'd ever seen. And, and a lot of people say, you know, in the world, uh, he was just uh, prolific. He was incredibly talented and, um, that had really nothing to do with our friendship. Uh, it was just a really cool guy to always hang around and he had a really, um, really fantastic way of viewing the world, ask questions, you know, no matter what you did or who, who, who you were, you know, if you were like an HVAC guy, he'd ask you about like air conditioning units or, you know, if you're like a, if you're a school teacher, he'd ask you about your students, you know, and, um, and all the, all the while he was like the Michael Jordan of climbing, you know? And so he's a really special human. And he and I had made a trip into the wind rivers in 2015. And we, we had different partners at the time, but we made the trip intentionally to hang out with each other. And my partner and I were just climbing this mountain called Mount Hooker, which is it's really a notable face because it, um, it most people who listen to this will know of El Capitan. Um, so it's it's not as big as El Capitan, but it's absolutely as committing as El, El Capitan. So it's 16 mile, 17 mile hike in to this mountain. And in the 60s, like 1964, this guy, Royal Robbins, uh, Dick McCracken, and a guy named Charlie Raymond went in there and they they climbed this 2000 foot face 16 miles in. And those guys were, those were guys are legends. Legends. Yeah. They, I know who they are. Yeah. They're, they're, um, prolific Yosemite climbers and they called this route the first grade six route outside of Yosemite Valley. So it's the same grade as El Capitan in terms of commitment and s- scale, which basically means hard as F for those who listening <laughs> don't know climbing terms. Yeah. It, I mean, it means like, like brown pants when you look at it, you know, it's like, you're, you're, you're literally looking up just kind of like, Oh my God, we're going up that, you know, it's, it's huge. 
and and so it hasn't really had much free climbing on it at this point. But uh, in 2015, when we went in there, the goal was to to free climb on Mount Hooker. And Hayden was exceptional at free climbing. He was unbelievable at it. And and they, he wanted to put a new route up on Mount Hooker, which I wasn't even, I mean, even though he was 11 years younger than me, I wasn't even in the ballpark of qualified at that time, I think. I mean, I've learned a lot since then. It's only been five years. But so, yeah, that was the goal is to go free climbing on Mount Hooker. I want to hear a little bit more about Hayden. His, his death was talked about a lot in the media and it's, it's tragic. It's like, it's, it's probably one of the saddest stories in, in the outdoors I've, I've heard in a really long time. Do yeah, you feel it, okay telling it? I don't yeah, really. It, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's been, it's been almost two and a half years. So it's, I've had it and I've, I've written a lot about it and I've talked a bit about it openly, but yeah, he, um, you know, it's where to start really. Um, so Hayden had climbed, you know, after we finished our Christmas light seasons, he would climb all over the world. And, uh, you know, he won multiple Pile d'Ors, which is basically like the Tour de France of alpine climbing in the world. Okay. So he, he was doing the most notable climbs and recognized for him in, in the world uh, multiple times over. Um, and, he, you know, he's like 25 when this was happening. And in that, he lost um, his main climbing partner, uh, this guy named Kyle Dempster. And, um, and, and others to, to name, you know, a few guys, this guy, Justin, um, Griffin, who lived in Bozeman, Montana. And, and so he was just getting hit left and right with these tremendous losses in, in his life and having a really hard time kind of moving through that year after year. And Hayden was an interesting guy because despite his talent and his like p- pure heart, he was pretty self-conscious about just about girls in his life. You know, he, he, uh, he was born with a cleft lip and he expressed to me that, you know, he, he had a hard time finding love because people didn't find him attractive. And then it was like, man, dude, screw those girls. They, if that's how they, if that's the thing, then they don't belong in your life anyway, you know? And so he met this girl, Inga Perkins, and he just, totally fell head over heels for it. And it took, it took a while for that to, to set. Um, but it was kind of like one of his first real true loves. And she really helped him navigate through this like epic loss in his life. But then, um, he went skiing one morning, super early on this massive ski mission in Bozeman. And, she and he were caught in an avalanche that he started and, um, you know, it was October, it was super early season in Bozeman. It was October 7th. So, I mean, think about getting caught in an avalanche in October, you know, it's just so unlikely really. So they didn't have avalanche beacons. They didn't have shovels. They didn't have probes and they got caught in this avalanche and Hayden, Hayden was buried, but he, he was able to get out and, he searched for hours for, I mean, he searched for hours and hours and I, it's, I mean, yeah, he didn't have gloves, like digging with his bare hands, just digging for this person that he loves so much. And, and after like three hours of searching for, you know, he, he knew she was dead and, um, it's kind of like the spot where he just, you know, he lost it all for the last time. And, um, he ended up, he ended up, taking his life that night. 
That's so, so sad. And yeah. so heavy. And it had to have been so confusing for everybody around him. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it was really confusing. It's like this guilt that I, I kind of, I've, I've ran into since, you know, a few years have passed that, I, that I've been able to confront and like learn that other guys have had it too. That, you know, it was just like, how could he not have? The day that I heard that he had died, I flew up to Bozeman and I went to the avalanche site. And the plan was to stay, you know, a week there, five days, two days. You know, I was just going to sit at the base of that mountain until it made sense to me. And then when I found out he'd committed suicide, um, you know, the sadness just turned to anger and the anger to rage. And, um, and I, I hiked out and I was looking at my cell phone the entire time. Just, I need to know if he could have called us, you know, and I'd say a third of that journey home, you know, he could have made the phone call. And, and so I, I definitely internalized a bunch of guilt from that. Um, which is weird. It's, you know, survivor's guilt's what killed Hayden. And that's, I'm realizing that's not uncommon, you know, like survivor's guilt's a very, very powerful thing. And I experienced it myself, honestly, the fact that, you know, I, I have voicemail still saved on my phone that, you know, from the three days prior. And I feel still to this day really guilty about it, about, you know, I remember him calling and I remember like being in the middle of something and work and not answering and just being like, I'll call him that evening or whatnot. And, and I think that, you know, our minds play tricks on us when stuff like that happens to you. It's like, you know, you want to internalize it to be your fault or whatever. And I think I'm largely past that, but, uh, you know, when you have a person like that in your life do something that tragic, it's just really hard to not think of what you could have done. You went back and did gambling with the wind. Mm -hmm. Was part of that process to, to sort of face it head on and, 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 and maybe, I don't know, it sounds like such a heavy thing to have gone through. Did, did, doing that route sort of help you get closer? Yeah. So that route I'd started. So the 2015 climbing in the wind rivers I did with Hayden and uh, our buddy Witt and my partner, Mike Pennings. And, and so we started this route together that he didn't finish. And I only spent one day with them on that wall in 2015, but he put up this like really exceptional rock climb that went halfway up. Mount Hooker. And so Hayden always wanted to finish it and finishing it was a huge ordeal, massive ordeal and, and, you know, really time intensive. And, and so when Hayden died, uh, I was searching, I was searching big time for whatever, whatever made sense, you know? And, and, you know, I think back to those, to those months after his death. And I, I think of, um, you know, I was ready to camp at the mountain for a month if I needed to understand, you know. And this just made sense. It was, it was actually uh, an interesting segue to where it actually came in that I decided to do that route. I, Hayden and I had climbed in the, here in Colorado the year prior in 2016. Uh, this, this climb that... That's uh, it, it's if you're into technical jargon, it's, it's a 512 rock climb with a really hard... Um, like kind of impassable slab at the top. 
And if you do it just right, you won't fall, but it's pretty easy to fall because it's super bouncy. And, and I went up there and I cut my fingers and I was like bleeding underneath my fingertips. And so I couldn't hang on to the rock and I, I fell off with Hayden there blowing me. And, and after his passing, like three or four days after I got home from Bozeman, I was just like, I need to go do that route. And so I went and I had this really like spiritual experience on it where uh, these like really strong updraft started kind of pushing on me from below and, and the same sharp holds were cutting my fingers the same way. And, um, and I started to feel like the stickiness, like the, the moisture between my fingers and the rock. And, and I just like really honed into the, to this, this updraft and, and, uh, I got to the top without falling and it, it, it provided this weird closure that I didn't expect. And, and then immediately, you know, it, it just did, it just did a lot for me, you know, that it was almost like he was there next to me doing it. And it felt like I was close with him again and kind of a way to say goodbye in a way. So this um, was in 2018. It was in 2017. It was right after he died. Yeah. Right after he passed yeah. away. Jess, you're a strong guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm really impressed with you and, um, your vulnerability. I, I appreciate that. That's not an easy thing to do with someone you just met for five yeah, seconds no, in a podcast room. No doubt. It, it's helped. I, I, I just wrote this long article, which I don't know if you read it or not. I did read but, it. It was um, really good. It's getting printed. Yeah. It, we'll link to it. So this, this whole story, I was asked to do a full article, uh, by the Alpinist. It's a climbing magazine. And so I, I, probably took me a hundred hours to write it. You oh. know? It's, it's just such a layered story. It's I'm familiar with it, you know, and I'm open with talking about it now, but it's kind of funny because after this gambling in the winds route, you know, we did it, but after we did it, I was kind of asked to talk about it more. And it was, you have the how and the why, and the route was kind of the how. And then when we, you know, it's just the thing you know, and it, it's the thing we did, but the why is the real important question. And, and I had to really examine the why, why did we do it? Why? And I didn't really have the answers to it, honestly, until I wrote this article and sat with it. I, I hurt my knee in December and I was pretty much on the couch until I had knee surgery two weeks ago. So I sat and I just really had time to think about the why and put words to it. And the editors over there really helped extract you know, by asking the right questions. And, and I think that it's been, you know, that, that article might be the worst wage I'll ever make in my life for what I going to get paid for it. But, um, I think it might be the most valuable thing that I've done for this process. I mean, it's like equivalent of 700 therapy sessions or something, you know? So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable talking about Hayden and losing him and, and the reason for doing this route. So it sounds like the whole climb was cathartic and Hayden's parents, did they come out? They did. Yeah. Um, so, so the 2015 route was partially completed. I had this, um, I had this experience in the South Platte before Hayden's memorial where I felt him kind of in that updraft. And then, um, the partners that my closest partners and Hayden's partner that he had done that route with at his memorial, we, we made a pact to go back and uh, we're like, this is. So that's what you did in 2018. 
Well, yeah, that was at his memorial. That's when we decided we were yeah. going to finish the route. And then we went back in 2018 to try it. And that effort was just futile. And Hayden's parents joined us. A few of Hayden's best friends came in just to be there. But it, it was just the wrong timing. The weather was terrible, but, you know, we had his ashes in camp, like in front and center. The mood was just dark and... It wasn't time, you know, like for me, had we completed it that year, it wouldn't have done it for me. You know, there would have been more grieving I needed to do. And, and so I think I would like to think that the mountain wasn't going to let us up that year based on that metric, you know, but whatever it was, I mean, it was so cold in there and the wind rivers are just filled with mosquitoes and there were no mosquitoes. It rained twice a day. Um, it's snowed usually in the evenings, which is really Apparently not unusual, but for us, that was my third trip in there. And that was unusual for sure. Was, I'd never seen snow in the middle of August where, you know, it'd accumulate eight inches at the bottom of the mountain, not the top. So then did you go, have you gone back since? Well, we finished the route this year. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. So 2018 was a fail. <laughs> we we okay. got, a, we got a little ways up and then we went back this year. And, Congrats. Uh, yeah. Thanks. How did that thanks. feel? Um, it's a good question. Uh, confusing, honestly. Yeah. Um, it was really being able to, to, to see his vision through and to, to get up the mountain in the style that he had started it. I mean, he was such a phenomenal climber that he would have a hundred feet between protection bolts at times. And so it was really difficult do what he had done already. And so, you know, during the process, we we're just trying to do it. You know, it was like, oh man, this is, uh, this is just an undertaking anyway, but to actually get to the top in the same style, it was really hard. So when we got to the top and we kind of saw it through, it was just really confusing. It was like this, this all of a sudden is over, which, um, I was happy about, but it, it wasn't the release that I was looking for, you know? And then after we got back, I realized that it was, it was really like one of these things that it kind of opened my life up again. Climbers are interesting when you get a project, uh, you know, project could be a sport climb or it could be a big mountain that you want to climb. Um, it, they become all consuming and they think, you know, it's, it's like a Olympic athlete wanting to win the gold medal. And when you finish your goal, it's kind of like, what's next, you know? And to me, that was it. Like I was going to do the, that was the only thing on the horizon. I was going to do that climb until it was done. It didn't matter how long it took. And so all of a sudden I realized it was over and, and it really opened me up and kind of released me from this thing that had this, this grip on it that I'd placed basically on myself and the importance of it. And, um, you know, that was all inherent to just my own thinking around it. But yeah, like life just feels a lot lighter now that it's done. I, I used to wear Hayden's necklace. Um, I've chosen to take it off and you know, it sits above my mirror and it's more like a, feels more like a chapter in my life that's, that's, that's closed rather than uh, this thing I'm living day to day, you know? I think when you, when you're around someone who's lost someone very close to them, you can tell where they're at by the, 
by the tense that they're speaking about the person who passed away. Like if it's present tense, you know, like, oh yeah, Hayden loves coffee too, or, you know, and, and so I, I find myself, you know, I don't speak in the present tense anymore around it. And, um, and I don't hold it in that way where it's just that potent anymore, you know? So it's, it's been really good that way. What would Hayden have said after you finished that climb? Uh, he would use an exclamatory. I'm, I'm sure, sure he would have. Like he sounds like a really funny <laughs> yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he would have been to the moon psyched for sure. You know, this podcast, I started it because I wanted people to feel less stuck in mm. life, whatever it was. And I wanted people to just live more wildly. So what advice would Hayden give about living more wildly? Um, that's a really cool question that you asked that, honestly, because we talked about that a lot and, and I, uh, I had felt very stuck, uh, at times and I would, I would talk to him about that and he would say like, man, cause he, he didn't do that at all. He wouldn't, he was never stuck, but he always just said, well, like, why do you want to go on a climbing trip with this girlfriend that doesn't really like climbing? Like, just go surfing, man. And, and, and he really like brought that to the table and he, he'd question you. He'd say, why don't you learn to play music or read a book or something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and not be stuck, honestly, just do something else. You know, the world is just so open to whatever you put your energy into. Yeah. That was one of his biggest gifts. I think that he could really get, he could extract that out of people, you know, and encourage that. And so I feel like your identity in this world is oftentimes wrapped into what you do. And, um, I watched him have climbing stripped from him twice. He like totally destroyed his ACL in a stupid bouldering fall in a gym. He fell like two feet and his tore his ACL now. And then I saw him dislocate his shoulder and tear his rotator cuff, a new one, really. And he, he learned to bake bread. He learned to play music. He learned to, I mean, it just, it goes on and on. And next time I hung out with him after he destroyed his ACL, he could play Bob Dylan on the guitar. <laughs> That's so know? cool. <sighs> yeah. So it's, I don't know, just being less attached to the identity that you wrap around what you are doing. Hayden was not only a phenomenal climber, but he was also a hilarious, kind person and an adventurer who pursued really wild ideas. He sounds like someone I really would have enjoyed talking to. Luckily, talking to Jesse made me feel like I did have a chance to know a little bit more about Hayden. And Jesse, well, he's a total stud himself. He's someone who's also kind and full of his own wild ideas. He's spending the next few months climbing some pretty incredible icy terrain in Quebec, Norway, and Nepal. So of course, I had to ask Jesse some wild questions before we finished our chat. What's the weirdest thing you've seen climbing? Weirdest thing is, okay, so this last weekend, I was in Ure, and this is southwestern Colorado, and this Australian guy's there, and he um, <laughs> he ends up seeing an ice screw like 10 feet down in this pool of water that someone had dropped and, and homeboy just 
gets buck naked and dives in, you know, sub freezing water that's moving really fast <laughs> and grabs this ice screw. And it's just so psyched that he found this $20 ice screw and he's like trying to not have hypothermia afterwards. That was pretty weird. That's so awesome. Where would you live if you didn't live in Boulder? Uh, can I live anywhere? Anywhere. For sure. Europe. Wow. Yeah. What part? Somewhere where there was a lot of striking limestone nearby, like France, Chamonix, something like that. Probably. Nice. Yeah. If you had a movie about your life, what would the theme music be? Oh, dear. I really like Tycho. So I'd be kind of like running the Tycho theme in the background, kind mm. of an electronic chill vibe. Yeah. Is that what you listen to when you climb? Yeah. Do you have any things you say to yourself to kind of keep going? Uh, oftentimes I think like this is going to be as hard as it ever gets. So, you know, tomorrow, if you can get through today, don't worry about it. Tomorrow's going to be fine. That's good advice in life. Yeah. I think that rowing like gave us that, you know, we'd have these like rowing, rowing tests. It's like set your clocks for 2000 meters. And if you don't go under six minutes, then you got to do it again or whatnot. And I mean, I dreaded those days so much. You always knew it was going to end though. You know, do you ever get scared of heights? Totally. Yeah. What do you do? Uh, I think climbers have a really healthy fear of heights and, you know, without a rope on or, you know, knowing it's just fear of falling really. And I don't have fear of falling. when I have a rope on ever, but when I have, well, that's not true, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just kind of that understanding of the holality of what you're doing. You know, it's like if, you think you're going to get hurt, then you really don't want to fall, you know? Best advice to getting into climbing, get to the gym, finger holds. <laughs> I would say, uh, it depends on where you live. You know, I think that starting in the gym is cool, but it's really not the connection to the outdoors that, that really is the special part. And so if you really want to get into climbing, go hire a guide for, a day of local climbing, you know, uh, take a trip to Colorado or to the cliffs in New Hampshire or whatever it is, you know, and, and experience it with a professional that can keep you safe. And, you know, those first three minutes, like I said, are the dangerous ones. So if you don't know what you're doing, you're exposed to it, you know, and I think being in the outdoors is the way. I totally agree. I actually took a REI woman's rock climbing class mm. this year. It was amazing. I had no idea how hard it was. It was like this, it wasn't even that high up this rock, but holy cow, like everything is challenged. Your proprioception is challenged. Your like sense of fear is challenged. You burn so many damn calories climbing. Like that is why climbers are ripped. Not just because it's so I, hard. But I think like, it's because we can't carry all so, the food we need because it's, it's heavy. True. <laughs> but you're so hungry climbing too. What is your favorite snack to eat when climbing? Oh, good question. Favorite snack to eat while climbing? Uh, I'm really into these honey stinger waffles. They're right Those downstairs. Are... Samples. Like oh, yeah. Tons. So best trick to hanging Christmas lights without getting electrocuted? Oh, man. We always used to say if you don't get electrocuted, you're not trying hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> One more question for you. Advice that you can give to people who want to live more wildly. Like clearly you've made a life for yourself. That's That's really awesome. And totally your own. Yeah, I think just not falling into the the thinking that you're, you know, you're on this like linear path that you can't get out of because, you know, you could walk out of your job right now if you hate it and 
it's it's just a, a mindset, you know, of what do you want for yourself and believing in yourself. And and I think that you know, when you really listen to that and you're honest with yourself, you can make choices that are best for you, you know, not for out of, and, and I say not to live out of fear. Living in fear is the worst thing ever. Fear of like not being able to pay your mortgage or fear of, and, I, and not to say that they're not honest and rational fears, but, you know, maybe just paying attention to what's an irrational fear and, and letting that out of your life. You're in control of your story and you can change it. Life is short. Spend it doing adventures you want to do with the people you want to spend it with. Thank you so much to Jesse Huey for being so open and vulnerable with me in our conversation. I know that your story and Hayden's story will have an impact on our listeners, and I'm really honored you're willing to share it with me. You can head to our show notes in your podcast app or at rei.com forward slash wild ideas worth living to get a copy of the Alpinist magazine with Jesse's article, as well as to find that video of him and Hayden hanging Christmas lights. You can also follow Jesse's latest adventures on his Instagram account at Jesse Huey. That's at J-E-S-S-E-H-U-E-Y. Special thanks to Jesse's sponsor, Arcteryx, and to the Outdoor Retailer Show in Denver for hosting us in your podcast room for this interview. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor this season is Subaru. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas.